The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to Episode 9 of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are taking a look at Avengers number 8, Kang the Conqueror. I am very excited about this issue because I think Kang is a pretty awesome villain, and it's always fun to see a villain like this get introduced, especially here in the Silver Age when they're kind of goofy and they're kind of dumb, but there's so much potential there. And just wait, because over the next several years, we will see exactly how dangerous Kang can be. So this issue comes to us in September of 1964. It was written by Stan Lee, pencils by Jack Kirby, inks by Dick Ayers, and letters by Sam Rosen. And unfortunately, folks, this is actually going to be our last Jack Kirby Avengers issue. I mentioned last week we will see him again when we cover X-Men number 9. But for now, we are going to be saying goodbye to Jack at the end of this issue. On a somewhat related note, one of the things about the Silver Age that's a lot of fun is fairly consistently they will do funny or entertaining little bits in the credits for the issue. In this issue, when it says written by Stan Lee, in parentheses afterwards, it says our answer to Victor Hugo, illustrated by Jack Kirby, our answer to Rembrandt, inked by Dick Ayers, our answer to Automation, and lettered by Sam Rosen, our answer to Artie Simic. That last one in particular really amuses me because obviously Art Simic is one of the other letterers we have seen on the Avengers and poor Dick Ayers and inkers in general just really don't get a break. But they frequently do this throughout the Silver Age. And if you get a chance to just kind of thumb through them, they're really kind of entertaining. They don't always do it, but they do it a lot. I have to admit, I'm a little disappointed with the cover for this issue. The Avengers look great. The colors are great. But we get Kang in this kind of awkward, hunched-over pose. We barely get his face in profile, so we don't get a really good look at him. And we only get just the smallest bit of his ship. And I really think that's kind of a missed opportunity. It's unfortunate with a villain of this caliber that we only get this little sliver of them on the cover. Now that we are on to issue number eight here, the Avengers seem to be gathering quite the celebrity status. The issue opens with the Avengers attempting to get into Avengers Mansion, and the police actually have to hold back fans of the Avengers, and we see Giant Man is waving, and Wasp is actually signing an autograph. So they're really getting embraced by the New York community. I'm also starting to have a hard time believing that nobody's picked up that Iron Man and Tony Stark are the same person, because Iron Man's suit and Tony Stark's house are all decorated in the exact same color scheme. This is apparently a favorite of Tony's. This is an interesting moment because we have Wasp stating that it's time for the Avengers to have a permanent leader, that it's silly that they don't have one. And Iron Man responds saying that perhaps it's silly, but it's more democratic this way. And oh, by the way, Captain America, it's your turn to lead the Avengers. I just think it's kind of interesting that at a point where Captain America is in charge is also the point at which we start going, hey, we should probably have a permanent leader. And I can't help but think that this is Stan and Jack starting to realize that, yeah, the team really does kind of need a a more permanent leader. And they're kind of dropping that hint and and putting that little thought in the back of the reader's mind that maybe that is something that we need. You know, we're not going to do it this issue or even maybe next issue, but we're going to plant the seed and let it sit for a little bit and come back to that. 
So at this point, the Avengers make their way into Avengers Mansion and connect with a general at the Pentagon who begins describing to him this scene that happened not long ago. A strange UFO, which I feel is somewhat of an oxymoron, like, aren't all UFOs strange? It's an unidentified flying object. If you don't know what it is, doesn't that make it strange? But I digress. So a strange UFO makes its way to Northern Virginia, blasts a landing site for itself, and then touches down. About an hour later, the army shows up, and nothing happens for a little while. But then one by one, all the army's tanks are vibrated to pieces. And then a mysterious figure comes out of the ship, calling himself Kang, and demanding to speak to the rulers of the planet Earth. There are several things going on here I want to talk about. First off, once again, I, I got to point out, this is a coloring difference here between the digital version and the, the physical versions. And I really have to side with the physical versions on this one. And the reason I have to, and this might just be me being picky, but this is written in 1964. The way the omnibus is colored, it looks like the Avengers are using a black and white television to talk to this general. And if you do a little bit of digging around, you'll find that although color broadcasts and television began well before 1964, only about 3% of American households had a color television in 1964. So I think just from an historical perspective and placing the issue in its proper time, I really think the black and white has the appropriate feel to it. Now, that's not to say the color version is at all bad. It's actually very nicely colored. But you lose some of the appropriate context for the time and place that the issue is written when you color it like that. This is also a great improvement in the show-not-tell department. Back in episode number four, I talked about how bad it is when you tell the reader what's going on without showing them. And this is a plot device playing back of the file footage, so to speak, that I think really works well for the showing what happens. Instead of a bunch of talking heads, we get to see what happens. We get to see the Avengers reactions. We see the general's face. And it just gives us a better feel for what's going on. And it, it fits in the story much better. It's kind of like an instant replay in sports. It gives it that kind of feel. So instead of watching the commentators tell you what's going on, you actually can see... And of course, we still have the narration at the top of the page, so we actually understand what's going on. And in fact, although the wording is very different and the tone is different, this kind of showing with the narration feels very Chris Claremont and the late 70s X-Men to me. The next thing I want to talk about is the fact that Kang uses a vibration ray. And we saw something similar in the last issue when Cap also uses a vibration gun to attack instead of a machine gun or something like that. And that has a lot to do with the comics code. And it's kind of very emblematic of the Silver Age comics where you get these really bizarre weapons that don't really look like weapons, but they are. In this case, even the guns that the soldiers have almost at all don't look like real weapons. There's a pistol that looks like a revolver, but that's about it. And again, all of this stems from the comics code. Part A, under the general standards, talks about scenes of excessive violence shall be prohibited. Scenes of brutal torture, excessive and unnecessary knife and gunplay, physical agony, gory and gruesome crime shall be eliminated. So in an effort to get around that particular statement in the comics code, instead of showing real guns, they show very bizarre science fiction-y kind of guns. And so they can get around that saying, oh, well, it's not really a gun. It's, it's a vibro ray. It's whatever kind of science fiction-y thing they can come up with. And in this particular age, in the 1960s, it still works. And let's be honest, this gives us some of the more memorable weapons in the Marvel Universe, the ultimate nullifier. Who the hell knows what it does, but it's not a gun. 
The last thing I want to cover from this particular sequence, because we've talked about a number of things here, is Kang's appearance. It's kind of ridiculous. Even by, like, Marvel 1960s supervillain standards. He looks like he is in hip waders, like a long shirt, and some kind of S&M leather bondage gear. And I realize that is not in any way, shape, or form what Jack Kirby is going for. Except maybe the hip waders. But, I mean, that's what it looks like. It's ridiculous. But you gotta love it. You gotta embrace it. So once the Avengers have been filled in on all of the salient details, they immediately head to the airport, jump on a plane, and head to Virginia. And thankfully we don't get a long travel montage here. It's Avengers in the mansion, a plane, and then they're confronting Kang. It's a nice quick transition because we've already had a lot of exposition. We don't really need a lot. We need to get to the action. Right here, this has got to be the first inclination that Kang is from the future. He's sitting on an invisible hover chair, and that's not what I'm referring to as him being from the future, but he's sitting there looking at what appears to be a souped-up smartphone. It's really what it kind of looks like. You know, it's got some kind of little handle he's holding on and stuff sticking out the sides, but it's got the general smartphone look. Obviously, there were no smartphones back in the 1960s. This is just me in 2016 projecting my thoughts onto comics from almost 60 years ago, but it amuses me, so I do it. So the Avengers confront Kang, and interestingly enough, it's actually Iron Man who's the first person to call Kang the Conqueror. And the way he does it is also kind of amusing. He says, you who call yourself Kang the Conqueror, but at no point has Kang yet to call himself the Conqueror. And then Iron Man tells him to state his business, and Kang's response is priceless. My business? Conquest, of course! You just called me the Conqueror. I'm here to conquer. I thought that was self-evident by being called the Conqueror, but, you know, if you really have to ask, I'll tell you. And Kang very just nonchalantly pushes a button on his belt, and all of the Avengers, except for Thor, are hefted into the air. And apparently Thor was going for the flanking bonus here, for all of the the D&D fans out there. And so he's kind of on the other side of Kang, and therefore out of reach of this anti-grav ray that has swept up the other Avengers and Rick Jones. Which, again, the Avengers have brought a 16 or 17-year-old to some form of invasion. It's questionable judgment on their part. But like I've mentioned before, I think Rick is really the embodiment of the reader in these early issues. So that's why Rick is just constantly being drug along to really dangerous places that teenagers should not be drug. From here, we get several panels of Kang demonstrating his superiority to the Avengers. I've already mentioned he lifts up most of the Avengers with his anti-grav ray. Thor throws Mjolnir at him, only to have it disappear into subspace and reappear at a completely different place and a different angle from where Thor threw it. And Kang is completely unaffected. Iron Man attempts to use his repulsors to fight the anti-grav ray, and the ship senses what he's doing and then reverses it to slam them all to the ground. The Avengers aren't straight up defeated at this point, but Kang has barely even moved and smacked them around pretty good. So something I failed to mention when I was talking about Kang's initial arrival is Kang shows a very methodical, unconcerned approach to destroying the tanks and to confronting the soldiers. Kang is ultra confident in his ability And as we'll come to find out, obviously his technology as well, because he is from the future. And I think the book does a really good job of showing Kang's overconfidence. It's at this point in the story that the Undersecretary of Defense shows up to negotiate with Kang. 
again, Kang asked to speak to the rulers of the planet. So far, he's gotten the Avengers, and now he gets an Undersecretary of Defense. And it's funny because the soldiers make a huge deal about the Undersecretary of Defense showing up, and I just, who cares? He's an Undersecretary. I don't think they would show this much concern and this much security for the actual Secretary of Defense. President of the United States? Sure. Other foreign leaders? Sure. An Undersecretary of Defense? This guy seems unimportant to me. And kind of expendable. But the Undersecretary demands to know who Kang is and what his business here is. And initially, Kang says, no, I'm not going to do that. And then he stops him and goes, all right. And his actual dialogue is pretty amusing. I need to explain nothing. And yet, perhaps I shall tell you more about me. So that you will realize how hopeless it is to attempt to defy me. But I just love the, and yet, perhaps I shall tell you more about me. You know, Stan is not always great with dialogue, but there are times that he writes something like that and I just kind of start snickering to myself. And I feel like when he was writing it, Stan goes, this is, this is a good line. This, this is, this is funny. This, I'm going to have fun with this. The readers, the readers are going to laugh at this. You know, he's not perfect and he probably takes more credit than he deserves. But on occasion, Stan, you do really hit the mark. So Kang proceeds to tell us all about himself, that he was born in the year 3000, that he has gone back in time, and he was the Pharaoh Ramatut, who first appeared in Fantastic Four number 19, and that he also met Doctor Doom, which happened in Fantastic Four annual number two. That one in particular was kind of weird. It was not actually Kang himself, it was still Ramatut, and he's only in it for about four pages, at which point then the Fantastic Four go on to fight Doctor Doom. But it's also heavily implied that Ramatut is Doctor Doom, or vice versa, that somewhere down the timeline, one will become the other. And the logic they use is not very solid, kind of questionable. And it's not really further expanded upon. The next time we'll actually see Ramatut is not till Avengers 129. And that'll actually be a Kang-centric story. So obviously we will determine later on that he is not Doctor Doom. Though he is a descendant of Doctor Dooms. And that's actually established fairly early on when he's still Ramatut. So after being Ramatut and meeting with Doctor Doom, he tries to go back to his century, which is the year 3000. And he overshoots just a hair and ends up in the year 4000. At that point, you know, the world is pretty well trashed, but there's a lot of futuristic barbarians fighting with really advanced weapons that they don't understand, but that Kang does understand. So he is quickly able to carve out a massive empire for himself. But then he realizes that he's really ruling over a dead world and that really that doesn't fill his desires or needs. So he decides to go into the past and conquer Earth when it's still worth conquering, which is why he comes back to 1964. At this point, Giant Man is pretty much fed up with listening to Kang's story, and he grabs Kang, and that doesn't go very well for him. He gets blasted backwards, Thor attempts to attack Kang with his hammer, he once again hurls Mjolnir at Kang, and instead of sending it into subspace, Kang erects an antimatter screen that, in theory, should instantly disintegrate any earthly matter it touches. But because Mjolnir is made of Uru, which is a magical metal, it is not unaffected, but it instead bounces off and returns to Thor. Wasp also attempts to get in the mix here and disable some of Kang's circuitry, but because the technology is so advanced, she is really lost in what to even do and she's quickly caught by setting off some kind of alarm within his armor. Kang grabs Wasp and Giant Man is able to remotely turn Wasp back to her normal size. So this kind of made me wonder, you know, at what point has Giant Man finally stopped pill popping and has he gone to some other form of control? 
And that actually comes to us in Tales to Astonish number 59. And it's really only briefly touched on. Giant Man is doing a workout as Giant Man. And then when he's done, he says he's going to think himself back to regular size. And Wasp comments about him showing off his new cybernetic helmet modifications that allow him to change size just by thought. And the explanation for this is because they've been exposed to pim particles so much over the years, they can now basically just will themselves to change size. So while Kang is dealing with a, a now full-sized wasp, Captain America gets a lucky shot and takes out Kang's knees. Iron Man swoops in to grab Wasp, and the Avengers almost have him on the ropes. And then Kang just once again nonchalantly taps his belt, and Captain America, Giant Man, Iron Man, and Thor are all sucked into Kang's ship and placed in rooms under paralysis rays. And once again, whatever the reaction here is, Thor is turned into Donald Blake. And I'm kind of starting to wonder if there's anything that's not going to turn Thor into Donald Blake. We, you know, we've seen radiation do it a couple times. Now this paralysis ray is going to do it. It seems to be really, really easy to turn Thor back into Donald Blake. I don't know why it doesn't happen even more often than it already does. Giant Man is returned to his normal size. Cap is trapped under his shield. But the one who's really suffering on this one is Iron Man. Because, of course, Iron Man's chest piece is keeping him alive, and this paralysis ray is interfering with its ability to do that. So, if you look at Iron Man, he's in a considerable amount of pain while he's in this paralysis ray. And we'll see in a minute, he doesn't recover immediately either, like, like the rest of the Avengers. Of course, now that the Avengers are out of the way, Kang gives the Undersecretary of Defense a 24-hour deadline or else he'll destroy the planet. So I mentioned specifically that Giant Man, Iron Man, Thor, and Captain America were the ones who were taken, and that's because Wasp and Rick Jones are still out there. They managed to sneak off into the woods and are, as we speak, plotting to free the Avengers somehow. Now, while this is going on, we see the Marvel Universe's press corps or hard at work instantaneously publishing newspapers. I'll tell you what, the Marvel press corps here, these guys are the real unsung heroes of the Marvel Universe. I don't know what kind of technology they're using, but mere moments after an event happens, there's already dozens of newspaper headlines discussing the events. They really do just an incredible job, and nobody ever really mentions their hard work and sacrifice, and, and I feel that you know, we've been kind of remiss there. We also get a quick panel of all of the world leaders of the United Nations putting aside their differences and deciding to fight Kang together. And then we will see nothing else of that ever again. All right, we're going we're gonna to put aside our differences. We're going to fight Kang. And then we're not going to show up in the rest of the issue. Good job, guys. Go home. So since the world leaders are not going to actually play a, an active role in saving the Avengers, we're going to go ahead and leave it to Rick Jones and the Teen Brigade, because there is something to be said for teenagers being too young and stupid to understand how really dangerous the situation is. So the Teen Brigade just goes running at Kang through the cordon of soldiers. After they just saw Kang take out the Avengers with almost no effort, they just charge headlong at him. But in this case, they actually have a plan. And it's kind of a classic plan. They're going to pretend to serve Kang and hopefully find and free the Avengers. So after giving Kang their submission, Kang takes them aboard his ship and tells them to familiarize themselves with it. So Kang is leaving a bunch of teenagers he just met like eight seconds ago roam freely aboard his ship with absolutely no supervision. 
This is like the epitome of supervillains just doing nonsensical stuff. This is asking for problems, and Kang just is completely oblivious to it. And I will admit, it is actually really funny. But at the same time, it's a little frustrating. It's one of those things about the Silver Age I don't like as much. It's funny, it's lighthearted, but when the villains are self-sabotaging to this level, it becomes a little frustrating. And I realize, again, this is part of the comics code that good triumphs over evil. But when there's no question about good triumphing over evil, when there's no doubt in your mind, because up until this point, again, for a Silver Age comic, the issue does a very good job of giving you doubt that the Avengers are going to win. And then Kang does something this dumb and you go, all right, well, here it goes. To me, it serves to break the suspension of disbelief. Kang gives the Team Brigade about two minutes to go wander his ship, in which time they are unable to find the Avengers, and then he summons them to get a canister for him, to which point the Team Brigade promptly drops it and some kind of orangey, dangerous stuff comes spewing out that Kang refers to as pure energy force. Anyone who has taken basic high school physics should realize that energy and force are not the same thing. And in the background, the Team Brigade says, we know what we've done, and I kind of have to wonder... Do you really? I mean, I know you you realize what you think you've done. You're, you're buying time for your friends to find the Avengers. But you just dropped a canister of unknown substance from the year 4000. Everything this guy has thrown out so far has been super dangerous and really powerful. And now he wants this canister of stuff and you're just going to drop it. Oh, teenagers. But again, in their defense, it does work. And it buys Rick and the remaining Team Brigade members on the ship enough time to really inadvertently find Thor. Rick runs up and starts pressing buttons at random on this wall because he hears a buzzing sound. And because it's comic books, it works. Although in reality, randomly pushing buttons rarely works out the way you want it to. Now with the paralyzer ray disabled, Thor manages to make himself a door and exits the room. And Rick, Thor, and the rest of the Team Brigade help free the remaining Avengers. And Iron Man's having a hard time recovering. Thor, because he's also a doctor, like Dr. Donald Blake, realizes that something's wrong and suspects that maybe it's Iron Man's heart. So at least in Avengers, this, this is the first time that one character has gotten an inkling of some of the personal problems of, an, of a fellow Avenger. Though obviously... None of the Avengers know enough to tie a bad heart to Tony Stark, but they're slowly starting to pull at threads. And eventually this will lead to unraveling one another's identities, but that's going to take many years to figure out. So while the Avengers are recovering, we cut to Wasp, who is in New York. And this panel kind of bugs me because it says, while miles away in the well-stocked lab of biochemist Hank Pym. And Yes, true statement, you are miles away, but they were in Northern Virginia, so we'll call it Washington, D.C., and Pim's lab is in New York. That's a four-hour trip. So yes, a four-hour trip, roughly 200, 250 miles, that is miles away. It is in fact measured in miles. It's a little misleading. Wasp goes and gets this power ray gun from Giant Man's lab. It's a gun designed by Tony Stark. And she and a number of flying ants bring it to the Avengers. Now, she's not going to show up for a few more panels, but this is her intent. So while we're waiting for Wasp to show up, we do get the Avengers once again trying to fight Kang. And this time things actually go, I think, even worse. 
And we also start getting some disconnect between the dialogue of what's happening and the physical images of what's happening. At one point, Kang refers to his protective shield, and a couple of panels later we see what the protective shield looks like. In the first panel, he's obviously not using the same ability, the same power. There are several disconnects here between what you see and what you're reading. Now, one panel that I do really love is Kang finally closes off the, the cylinder of energy force. And as he's doing so, he really, really looks like James Brown with a microphone. You know, the James Brown does those really low microphone dips. Like, that's exactly what Kang is doing with this canister. So as Wasp finally shows up and delivers the gun to Giant Man, Thor is really doing his best to take out Kang's protective shield with Mjolnir, and eventually he's successful in overloading the shield, at which point Giant Man uses the ray gun that fires a capsule, again, a little bit of a disconnect here, and coats Kang with a special acid-based solvent, which will rot and decay any fabric, any type of wiring, or insulation. So basically, it just starts dissolving Kang's armor and all of his technology that's on his person i actually really like these couple panels of seeing kang's armor just immediately starting to rot away by the third panel he's already lost one glove i mean bits are just falling off of his clothes if you ever burned a lot of paper like a real like large amount you get a little bit of a breeze and you just get those onion paper thin ashes just flying off of the fire that's what it looks like and it's a really cool effect of course, Kang is undeterred still. He reaches up a hand and intersects with an invisible beam that nobody knew was there, and out comes a neutrino missile to destroy the Avengers, which Iron Man quickly deflects and it explodes harmlessly away from the Avengers. Though I have to question how harmless a neutrino-based anything is going to explode. But again, you know, for the moment, we'll go ahead and uh, accept that. And in response to this, Giant Man fires another capsule into Kang's ship to start corroding any further weapons that may be at the ready to attack them. At this point, Kang has been encircled, doesn't have any readily available weapons, certainly, and he's kind of forced to make a, you know, last-ditch effort. So Kang is from the year 3000, and he spent a lot of time in the year 4000, so Kang turns out to be nearly immune to radioactivity. Ah, yes, radioactivity. The safety blanket of the Marvel Silver Age. Kang's mask starts generating massive amounts of radiation, enough to kill the Avengers. However, Thor absorbs the radiation with Mjolnir, fires it back at Kang, and even this amount of radiation is too much for Kang. And he says, I'm reaching critical mass! If I absorb much more, I'm doomed! And he flees into his ship, takes off, and disappears into time. And at this point, we wrap up the issue. And our final panel, we get a nice lineup of all five Avengers and the Teen Brigade kind of hanging out in the background. Two closing thoughts on the issue, just on this, really on this last page. Uh, Mjolnir absorbing the radiation and then being able to fire it back at Kang. Again, I'm still looking into this a little bit further to, to find out if there's any more oddball kind of interactions. This, however, is far more consistent with other times that Mjolnir has interacted with radiation other than the, the ones we've seen so far. Mjolnir will be able to absorb energy and radiation in the future, and that it, that's just a generally accepted, for lack of a better term, power set for the hammer. 
Then my final thought before uh, wrapping up the issue here is that it's it's a nice final panel for Jack Kirby to bow out on. It's not amazing. It's not great. But he does get, you know, one last shot with all the characters and the team brigade. And it's at least a respectable panel for him to end the book on. So one of the things I think this issue does really well is setting up Kang as a credible threat. At least up until the point where he starts doing nonsensical things. I think especially his ability to systematically take out the army is is particularly effective. At this point, the army, it's 1964, the army is still looked at very, very favorably. You know, when we think of the 1960s, we, we tend to think of Vietnam, but Vietnam really didn't heavily kick off until after the Tonkin Gulf incident in early August of 1964. So this is is September of 1964 is when this issue is released. So we're really only a, a month or so into what most Americans think of as Vietnam as the war. So the army is still seen as a positive thing and as a symbol of strength. So Kang's ability to systematically and very casually even disable all of these American tanks really shows the level of power he has. If he can do that to the U.S. Army, the army that that won World War II, what else can he do? What can he do when he really puts his mind to it, when he tries, when he wants to do something? As I mentioned earlier, the issue does a much better job of showing the reader things instead of just talking at them. The arrival scenes for Kang and his background, they both have a lot of narration, but they also show the reader the events they're describing and not just talking heads. And it makes for a much more interesting read. Comics, one of the beautiful things about them is it is a blending of the written word and of pictures of images and when you don't take full advantage of that blending and especially of the images ability to tell a story then you're not making full use of the medium and it's unfortunate when you have a missed opportunity like that i mean comics can tell stories without even saying a word probably the most famous example of that is the gi joe issue silent interlude which is done from the perspective of a character that doesn't ever speak, and so the entire issue is silent. Similarly, there is an issue of Rocket Raccoon from about a year ago, maybe two years ago, where Groot is telling a story. So with the exception of, I think, the first page and the last page, the only words spoken in the entire issue are, I am Groot. And the story itself, whatever Groot is telling, is absolutely ridiculous. But the art tells enough of the story that you at least have a decent feel for what's going on. It's not as good as like Silent Interlude. It's really more of a a comedic joke kind of issue, but it's a lot of fun. I mentioned at the beginning of the the episode that this is Jack Kirby's last issue on Avengers, and I'm a little sorry to say that I think the art on this book is just not quite as strong as the art on some of our previous books. It's not bad art, it's just, you know, my general feeling is the consistent art, the, the strength that we've seen so far, is really not quite there in this issue. I'll be honest, I am looking forward to Don Hex taking over. I think I mentioned this before, he will bring a different artistic style to the book, which, I mean, I enjoy, don't get me wrong, but I would have liked to have seen Jack Kirby go out a little bit stronger than this. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And if you'd like to be a part of the conversation, send your questions and comments to Andrew at AvengersAssembly.com. Next week, the coming of... The Wonder Man! All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Uh, let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. You ever tried shawarma? 
There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it.